Stowaway, a low-budget but high-concept Netflix science fiction movie, addresses the age-old philosophical question of whose life has more value when someone must die so that others may live. Are you just watching episode one sixteen, Stowaway? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin, and joining us today in a first-ever guest co-host role, we have Blair Allen. Blair is the co-host of the NASA Edge video podcast. He is a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church of America and an adjunct professor at Regent University School of Communication and the Arts and a good friend of mine. I've asked him to join us here today because of the content of the movie Stowaway and what he can bring to it with all his goofiness. <laughs> Blair, welcome yes, to welcome. Are You Just Watching? I appreciate that, Tim, and certainly happy to be here. And I hope that our friendship remains intact even after this recording. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> Yes. Well, I have a feeling that Blair will probably make the two of us look, you know, like amateurs. <laughs> that That's all right. Something that's never been said ever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the interesting thing is, is that while this movie that we're discussing is a seems to be a fairly high concept science fiction, it's actually kind of a an old story. It's not mm -hmm. something that's horribly new. And I think that that's going to make the, the discussion more interesting because we're not going to necessarily have to spend a lot of time on the technical science fiction stand of it because there is so much of other things that's more at the heart of it thematically to yeah, discuss. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Before we get into all of that discussion, I do want to mention that the music is by Volker Bertelmann, which I hope I said that right. This is a first for us. I've not had this composer <laughs> mentioned before on this podcast. I thought the music was very slow and thoughtful and uh, discordant in places, which I guess kind of fits the general action of the movie because the m action in the movie was very slow and thoughtful <laughs> and sometimes discordant. <laughs> I've said this before, I'll say it again. I pay a lot more attention to the music since I've started working with you on Are You Just Watching? Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually noticed the movie, the music in particular for this movie, because of how they use those discordant tones to really emphasize the, the, the story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I actually thought, too, it was pretty ominous music. The score, mm -hmm. to me, sort of tended to put me in that frame of mind where I thought, well, you know, things are going to, I knew that they would go horrible. I mean, considering the, the subject matter and everything else, the title and all that, but I really thought uh, things were going to go awry every time the music started on some of those long, <laughs> slow camera moves in the mm -hmm. spacecraft. I just, you know, maybe I've seen too many alien movies, but uh, <laughs> I was a little yeah. on edge for sure. Yeah. And I thought that the music really kept the tension going for a lot of those scenes that were so long that you're kind of like, okay, they're moving, they're doing stuff. And the music was what gave you the tension and gave you the, the feeling that something was going to go wrong or something wasn't going to work right or whatever. It was the music that's, that completely communicated that. That's a really good point because, you know, they make so much in many of the films that we do about the pacing, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they they got to have the the quick pacing, and then they can then they can have the slow part. Then back to the quick pacing. The Avengers movies come to mind with that, but this one really managed the pacing. The film, at least in part, through the music, which I thought was pretty squ- skillfully done. Yeah, yeah, especially for a made for television movie. <laughs> yeah, it's. So. I was surprised when uh, one of the videos I was watching called it a low budget film, and I was looking at it going, "This is low budget." Yeah. Holy mackerel. <laughs> You know, and it also added to the isolation of the film. And we'll talk about some of the things they did to keep this film isolated. But I thought the camera, the pace of the camera moves and the sort of the tone of the music, you know, sort of really did help sort of accentuate that isolation feeling uh, mm-hmm. throughout the spacecraft mm-hmm. and among the characters. Uh, very effective, uh, I thought. And there's parts of the movie where there really isn't a lot of dialogue. So the music really keeps it from just being an utterly quiet movie. It helps express what's going on visually without having words. So that helped a lot. I don't know when they give awards for music and movies. I don't know if if it's just for the, you know, the composition of the music apart from the delivery package as being part of the movie. Or if it's an award for how well the music goes with the scenes that it's in. But I feel like this movie handles the music better than the majority of the movies that we watched in as far as how well it integrates with the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Rather seamlessly, in fact. Yeah. Well, let me play a little bit of it so you can hear what we're talking about, and then we'll bump into our discussion. We can just talk for a little bit with hopefully not spoiling too much of the movie in our initial thoughts. I will tell our listeners right now that we're not going to try to avoid spoilers because the climax of this movie is so important to the discussion of the movie that there's Mm -hmm. very little that we can talk about without destroying the climax. So (laughs) just be warned, if you haven't watched the movie yet, or you don't intend to watch the movie, we're not going to try to avoid spoilers. But we will at least attempt it for the first few minutes here. (laughs) Right out of the game. And, you know, creatively, they don't seem to try and hide – they don't try to bury the lead. (laughs) You don't really go through much of the movie wondering how it's going to resolve because of the trailers and everything. So I think we can stay true to it, even giving away a little bit. Without ruining yeah. it. And I also think it's that tension, right? It's the dramatic tension of, of what the resolve is going to be, more so than what it actually is. Uh, part of what's enjoyable about this movie is you're sitting in the spacecraft with the characters, feeling the weight of the decisions they have to make. And that's part of the experience. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes this movie as good as it is, because it's not just a thriller. It really is something that you're experiencing and you have to wrap your mind around the dilemma that they're being Mm -hmm. faced with. And I I appreciate the fact that they have taken you from launch all the way through, you know, the the beginnings of this long two-year journey. And pretty much everything seems to happen really quickly in They've, they've got this whole journey ahead of them, but the whole climax of the movie, you know, all happens long before they ever get to Mars. In a way, this movie reminds me of a, of a novel that was written, uh, probably quite a few years ago by a Christian scientist. I believe he's a physicist and he writes Christian science fiction. And uh, he wrote a book called Oxygen and it was about a mission to Mars in which there's an explosion on the ship after they're already underway and they don't have enough oxygen for everybody on board. So it has a very similar premise. And, uh, and they have a young female doctor on there who is the only one that can stay, put everybody else in a cryogenic sleep so that, and she's the smallest person. And so her oxygen demand is the less. So she's the one that has to stay awake and maintain the ship all by herself. And uh, it was interesting that that this movie kind of went so close with it. My thoughts on this movie kind of start out with the fact that I am completely and utterly annoyed by Anna Kendrick, even though she's like the heroine of the movie. Wow. wow. I know. I, I shouldn't say that. But in my time, I was a huge Twilight fan. And so <laughs> I was I was a, amazed at how little she mm. changes as an actress from role to role. And I, I mean, I, I could. I didn't even know she was in Twilight. <laughs> Uh, yeah unfortunately my experience with anna kendrick uh was pitch perfect so oh really yeah was just the same character pretty much because it always feels like she's Uh, she's the same in everything i've seen her in yes exactly she 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 delivers her lines it's almost like she's not really in the roles like she's reading lines and i don't really feel like she is is experiencing the story as a character is yeah. it's more like she is an actress reading lines. And so I really felt I, like I don't know how much how much of that though is you know, when when you get hired to play that kind of character repeatedly versus what she really needs is a, a good villain role. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the odd thing about her, though, is is that they are – I mean, what she played in, in Twilight was nothing like this role, but she delivered the lines in the exact same way. So mm. they're, t- they're not the same character, but because she played both of them, you know, it's like – I haven't watched a lot of films with her in it, but sometimes, it, you know, also, you know, when it comes to performances – you know, I, the writing plays a, a, a big role in it, obviously, and mm-hmm. this uh, is fairly p- plot-driven from the beginning, and just not a lot of good opportunities to show a lot of, of character, I don't think. And and so, if you don't have a lot of dimension or a lot of uh, range as an actor or haven't shown it, mm-hmm. this probably wouldn't be the kind of role that you could show it, at least what mm-hmm. I get from the, the writing of the script. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, you feel like, okay, this role was written for this actor. Yeah. But I don't feel like that was the case for any of these roles in this movie. Mm. Yeah. 
And we've seen Daniel Day Kim in a lot of other things as well. And I think he did okay yeah, in the role. I really like him. Yeah. He's got a much better range mm-hmm. in the stuff we've seen him in. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just kind of feel like Anna Kendrick just didn't get into the role. It was like she was – there were places in the movie where she delivered her lines exactly the same way she delivered her lines in Twilight. <laughs> It would throw me out every time because she is older than she was when she did Twilight because this has, you know, been several years. But she, I think she was in her 20s when she did Twilight, even though she was playing a teenager. But she has not grown as an actress since then. And, and the way she delivers her lines are very much the same. And so every time she would do that, I would be like, oh, yeah, Twilight. So it, it was throwing me out of the movie. Well, it's interesting because this brings up an aspect of you know, what it means to cast a movie like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, um, when you think of this kind of mission, you don't think what I need is a, you know, a lot of characters with a lot of different range. Now you do when you're making a movie, but mm-hmm. when you're, when you're planning a mission to Mars, you think about roles and, you know, their, their performance of those roles on a mission like that would be very robotic. I mean, you, you're constantly doing repetitive tasks, talking with, with Earth, talking with mission control and following procedures and not showing a lot of emotion a lot of times. And this Mm -hmm. movie really took an entirely different approach to that. And so, you know, I, I found myself a little bit conflicted because I'm, I'm watching this and I'm saying this is nothing like what I would expect of a team of astronauts going to Mars. But clearly what the filmmakers are going for here is something a little bit different than authenticity on that level. Mm. Yeah, I want to say that that was an intentional choice on the on the part of the creative team, you know, really emphasizing the emotional angst mm. because I feel like there's a a philosophy in Hollywood a, a section of people who feel that the emotional angst is part of the delivery. It's part of the deliverable for a movie mm. that if it doesn't have the emotional punch then it's it's just not going to be as effective. And let's face it, you remember when C-SPAN first came out and everybody was making fun of, oh, joy, we get to sit and watch legislature <laughs> all day. <laughs> yeah, That's so exciting. Yeah. yeah, I'm getting nostalgic just thinking about it, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> if we had video on to ISS, you know, it would actually be even more boring than C-SPAN <laughs> because, you know, they're just doing this the same repetitive things over and over and they're constantly communicating back and, and following these these written procedures, right? I think what you want is a mashup between the ISS and C-SPAN, like put some, some senators <laughs> and congresspeople in zero gravity and see how well they perform. <laughs> some of them can be inside the ISS and some of them can be outside the ISS. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. <laughs> Tim. <laughs> hey, I'm not saying which. <laughs> Just No, but I, I think it is an interesting point cuz you know, you know, back to actors for a second, it's interesting when you think of a movie like The Martian where you have you know, astronaut characters again and, and very uh, difficult circumstances. But this has to do with the source material and the writing of the script and even the intention of what you're trying to accomplish with the story. Mm-hmm. 
definitely a lot more range in a film like that in terms of actors portraying characters in difficult circumstances with lots of range without it coming across as as being uh, as I don't know if you want to say flat or as one dimensional or two dimensional I guess you should say of someone like Anna Kendrick even though I thought overall is is very serviceable acting but not particularly memorable performances for the actors on on stowaway I, I think serviceable is a good way to put it yeah you know um it, it was interesting to me that the the commander's role was actually the least important of the the four roles in the movie hmm. the way that they played the emotion with her character was actually the only one that put me off. Mm. I didn't, I certainly didn't mind it with Michael, the stowaway because it made sense. You know, he, he was in a situation against his will and the psychologist, David Kim, the emotion that he played, I thought he actually hit a, a nice balance with his character and Kendrick did okay with the emotion too. But when, the intensity that they played with the emotion from the commander, I was looking at that going, man, if I had, when I was in the service, if I had a commander who exhibited that level of emotional distress, <laughs> I would be concerned. And in this particular movie, it brought to my mind the suitability of this character as a person to actually command this mission if she is so drastically affected by by even the little things hmm. Hmm. yeah to that point she makes a quote later in the film tim that i think speaks to that where uh, she says basically guys this is not a call for a solution the entirety of hyperion is down there trying to figure this out i'm only telling you this because i need you to be mentally prepared for what's going to happen hmm. no leadership um, in a no real direction to give the crew on how to respond. And I, I think this is a tricky thing, uh, with this film because at least in my experience, my limited experience in just being in and around missions to space and astronauts and that kind of thing, these are highly motivated, driven decision making people. And in fact, I had this, uh, I asked one astronaut if, if he'd be willing to like, on the last shuttle mission, do a barrel roll in the uh, shuttle <laughs> on approach because he kind of had the personality that said, I could do something like this. Like I could I have the capability to do it. Anyway, I confronted him about it and he said, well, you know, we kid around. He said, but I would never do it. And I said, why wouldn't you? You know, it's the last shuttle mission. And he says, well, the way these missions are designed, it's not so much about what I do. They're so scripted and you're so prepared. And the reason you're so prepared is because everyone has to know what I'm going to do, and they know what to respond to. And so if I start freelancing or I start doing things sort of off script, it's not that they don't want you to ha have a creative mind or be able to make decisions on the fly. It's just that everybody sort of has to know how to respond. So you limit the number of things that you can do in order to protect mission success. And I thought it was a really good mm. point. Mm. And you just, among the... The characters on the spaceship here in this film, because the film seems to be more focused on what's going on emotionally with the characters, you don't get to see that that 
sort of better mission effectiveness side <laughs> come yeah. out. I, I'd venture to say that it's probably there, but the way the story is written is really just not to focus on that side of, of what it means. And it comes across as, as ineffective leadership, in, in my opinion. It's a lot like Eve was saying at the very beginning. This is The story they're telling is really an age-old story. And just the framing just happens to be <laughs> in a mission to Mars. And I, I think the director, Michael Pena, I think is his name. Uh, I think he was focusing a lot more on the story and a lot, not a lot less, but less on the science. It was certainly more than just a nod to the science. They did get a lot of things right, but the point was they, uh, and you see this in, in some of the, uh, the making of and the scientific commentaries. The point was they said, all right, this is what we want to happen to move the story along. What are the science things that we need to eliminate so that this can happen? Yeah, because there was a science consultant who actually had a video out that said that there was actually ways to solve the problem they had on the ship, but they didn't want to accept any of the, the solutions because then they couldn't have the actual outcome. And the, the outcome was what they were driving towards, so they had to turn things mm -hmm. around within the mission and on the ship in order to make it work so that the, none of those solutions would work. So that they had to do this completely stupid. And, you know, if you're looking at it from a technical standpoint, it's like they should have had fail safes. There should have been, you know, ways to prevent <laughs> this problem. And, and yet they have the problem and they have to fix it the way they fix it so that, you know, yeah, that was what the story required. And so they had to, you know, blow out the science in order to make it work. Yeah. And that's, that's tricky too, from a story standpoint, because I mean, obviously it's not either or, right. You, mm -hmm. you want to make these creative decisions and you'd like to be able to tell a story that addresses the moral issue that they're bringing up, but you'd like to do it as authentically as you possibly can. And, you know, I, I feel for the filmmakers at that point because they're, they're probably sitting there already gearing up for production, already moving, moving ahead and just realizing that they're going to have to make choices to preserve the story. Uh, they certainly don't want to quit. And sometimes it, it hurts the movie and sometimes it doesn't. In this case, I think as long as you sort of step back and say, all right, they're, you know, this is not going to be how it would actually be. I just want to see what their thoughts are on the moral issue. Then you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But if you <laughs> if you can't sort of step away from that, you're not going to be able to enjoy the movie. <laughs> and you know, for me, fortunately, I love movies, so I was able to step right away. <laughs> it's all right. I'll I'll see what they have to say because uh, I like movies. It's almost a different type of suspension of disbelief. A, a lot of times, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief that a man can get in a, get in a mechanical suit and fly. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you just have to, you suspend the problems with the science in order to let the story wash over you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the true of pretty much any science fiction out there. There's always going to be something in order to make it work on film that is not scientifically accurate. I mean, the, yeah. the very concept at the very beginning of this movie where they're taking off and instantly connecting with their ship. I I've watched enough of these recent test flights and, and actual, uh, you know, of SpaceX and stuff to know that it doesn't happen that quickly. I mean, they take off and then, 
you know, several hours later, they connect with the International Space Station. So <laughs> everything is compacted to fit in a two hour time frame. So things don't work the way they do in real life. And so you, anytime you're watching a science fiction, you're thinking inside your head, you know, this is made for film. This is, yeah. you know, twisted to make yeah. it work. Yeah. It, for me, uh, Starway was as much a film about balance as it was anything. It was really balancing the, the story that they wanted to tell with the, the framing of the, how did you put it in, in your notes? The, the 20 minutes in the future science fiction type framing. All in all, I think it, it actually came out very well. Hmm. They balanced the science with the story. They balanced the camaraderie with the moral decision that they had to make. And some of the choices that they made to do that, like we mentioned before, was throughout the movie, the only voices you hear the entire time are the voices of the crew of this mission. After they take off, you, at the beginning, you you hear the back and forth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I forgot it. The opening scene does have ground control and all that. But all the communications that uh, that you witness between the commander and Jim at ground control, you never hear Jim. Mm -hmm. It's always just one side. And when you see the crew talking to their family, it's either they are pre-recording something for sending. Or you only hear the crew side. You don't hear the other side. And I liked that choice. I thought it really served to to emphasize the isolation of the crew. And to really, for me, it also emphasized that space is a very, very dangerous place. I mean, there is nothing safe about space. And we tend to get, particularly Americans, I think we tend to get very laissez-faire about space exploration. But the fact that we are able to send people into space and have them return safely is not only astounding, but it is at the cost of, you know, dozens of lives yeah. over the, the course of modern history. And we seem to forget that. I like the way they emphasized it with the isolation. I have a theory about the reason why once you're on the the actual ship on the way to Mars that you only hear the voices of the people on the ship itself. And I think it is to make the audience feel like they are the stowaway because mm -hmm. in the essence of what's going on, all of the astronauts have the little, you know, the ear thing earwig or mm -hmm. whatever it is, and they're hearing what's being communicated in directly into their ears. So it's not being broadcast through a speaker in the ship. So they are listening to somebody and responding. And so all you hear is what you would hear as if, if you were in the room with them. You don't hear what's coming through the earbud into their ear because you're in the room, but you don't have an earbud. Mm. And so, in essence, it makes you feel like you are in the ship as a stowaway. And that's, that's my theory. I think it's a great theory. I mean, I, I do. Yeah. I, I think we've talked about this idea of isolation and, and the way the music contributes to that. And, and I think even camera movement, always, you know, coming in over people's shoulders and, mm -hmm. you know, li limited POV, but really 
it makes sense, you know, from a production standpoint to stick with this kind of motif all the way through the film. And, and I, I think it's a good choice, even though it, it does, you know, it led to some of the problems that we've talked about. But in, in the end, I think it, it does sort of set the mood for what they're going to address with the bigger questions in this film. Because they just, just like the stowaway, um, that they're inviting you to ask these same questions yourself mm-hmm. uh, as a viewer. Right. Uh, what would you do in this circumstance? How would you handle these problems? How would you do that? And that's very different from all those scientific accuracy things we're talking about. So I think they committed to that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you buy in, I think it's it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. You know, in, in regard to buy in, there were two things that I had issue with. I mentioned one, which was the the level of emotional response from the commander. The second issue that I had was the whole issue with the algae. Mm. where he only had one batch or he only had two batches or and when it died it died and i was looking at that one like thinking that's not really the way this algae stuff works guys mm. you can spawn more algae from a viable batch it's not an all or nothing that was a hard one for me to stomach mm. but still it served the story and i, I definitely see why it was needed it's an interesting point, Tim, and and they don't really fully explain how that's going to work on the mission. So you're, you're kind of trying to put things together there. But I also thought it's it's really tricky in the midst of a difficult situation, even though I'm, I realize it's there, but to say things like, well, you know, this is two years of my research down the drain or, you know, there goes the whole point of why I'm I'm on this mission. Hmm. Technically you're now in a survival situation. So it's sad and unfortunate that your research may suffer. (laughs) Really, we're talking (laughs) about whether you're going to live or whether you're going to get back or how this is going to work. And it's unfortunate because I like, I want to like these characters, but there are moments like that where you just did not have the sense that, the the danger was being adequately addressed. Like, I hate to keep mm. comparing this to The Martian, but the approach that Matt Damon's character has in that is literally just to figure out a way to make things work. And it's it's just enjoyable to see all the science, whether it's plausible or not, all the steps he takes to, to get it done. And instead here, it's just like nothing can work and I'm upset about it. And the only solution is to make this moral decision, which we hadn't really even laid out what it is. I I guess we should probably do that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, that's actually kind of the main theme of the whole movie was this whole dilemma of if you have four people on a life raft. Well, excuse me, not life raft. <laughs> four people on a ship to Mars and you can only support three of them. How do you choose which person dies? And that is the moral dilemma because they have a stowaway they weren't intending. The ship was not designed to support four people. And then on top of that, they lost a pretty crucial piece of equipment for exchanging air. And they are not going to be able to have, I think it is even three people on. And so it's It's a situation that has been discussed for quite a while. There's a classic case where the lifeboat came from. Uh, Back in 1884, there was a case where three men were shipwrecked, and one of them was a Mm. cabin boy. 
who they ended up killing and eating for food because they didn't have mm -hmm. enough food and he was ill anyway. And when they were finally rescued, uh, the two men went to prison uh, for murder. But it's, it is an interesting dilemma when you're talking about it from a survival standpoint, you know, if, if one person has to die, how do you make that choice? Mm. It's an ethical problem that hopefully none of us have to face in real life because things change when survival is on the line. It's easy to sit back on your couch yeah. and talk about, oh, I would do this. But when you're actually in that situation, what do you actually do? You know, uh, this particular section of ethics has always been, it has been a particular interest to me recently because it comes into play with autonomous driving vehicles. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, they have to program in how to address these ethics problems. So they've been in the news a lot with, you know, Tesla and there was a, a crash in Arizona with a bicyclist. I think it was an Amazon autonomous vehicle. You know, the original lifeboat case, the one that was at, uh, actually a true case, was back from 1884, but really has been in the news a lot more recently. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't even be familiar with it, but for its relation to the autonomous vehicle industry. So I appreciate that they used this as the foundation for the story for Stowaway. Yeah, I do think, too, it's interesting that this wasn't a NASA mission. NASA, historically, when it comes to human spaceflight, and I think by policy, they, they would not be able to face this situation. They'd be like Captain Kirk with the Kobayashi Maru. They'd rewrite the rules so that they <laughs> didn't have to answer this question. But, but in all seriousness, they really, you see this in Apollo 13 and other situations where they, you know, their governing principles are that you would do everything to, to save all the entire crew. You'd never make a decision specifically uh, against another. So it makes sense that they have this fictional company, Hi Hyperion, Hyperion, that's being used. And, and but yeah. that's an important thing because really, you, you know, there is a sense in which NASA would just say, I'm, we're not going to address this issue. We're going to bring them back no matter what. But there is that question of if you're not governed by that mm -hmm. and you are trying to preserve the mission and you're faced with a difficult question, you know, what, it, what do you do? It's uh, a few years ago, a company announced, I think it, they were French, and they were going to plan a mission to Mars, and it was a one-way mission, mm. right? So they were going to go and just prove that you could go. And the astronauts, there was no plan to bring them back. And they actually had people sign up for it. And, and it <laughs> makes sense. I, there are people out there that are adventurous enough and think they might be able to make it work. But but NASA would never do that mission. They would never do a one-way mission, manned mission to Mars. So, you know, it it is interesting to see uh, how people – and in a lot of ways, want to skirt and avoid this issue. So I applaud them for at least addressing the reality of, of how you grapple with a situation where you potentially have to make a decision that will lead to someone's not coming back. Yeah. Right. And I think that that, that came up in our discussion when we, we did our review of The Martian, because we talked about that at length. And my position was I really felt like that if they had ended up abandoning an ast astronaut on Mars, that they would have just you know, a complete silence on the issue. They'd already declared him dead and it was going to cost so much money to go and do a rescue mission and bring him back that they would just let that rest. You know, he's dead, you know, and, and just bury all information about the fact that he survived. 
And I really felt like there was absolutely no way that in real life they would have been able to rescue him. And, and to, to put as much money as you saw them in the movie and in the book, you know, billions of dollars to rescue one man from Mars. You know, I didn't see that as being realistic, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. The author wrote something into the story to address that with the transparency Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. I don't know how much of that transparency restriction and consideration was actually true, but I thought it was a a clever way to to get around what certainly would have been a cover-up. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. This is now odd, me trying to suggest that there would not be a (laughs) cover-up. You know, like as the only NASA person, I don't speak for NASA. You know, I I just happen to uh, work closely with them, but... I would offer a, a slightly different response there. And, and it's true even of, of stowaway too. The, the one thing that's kind of evident to me, in a case like the Martian, for example, these surprise storms mm-hmm. and things that come up that we see in these fictional occurrences, it's, I mean, if you just understood the level of planning and projection and the, the man hours involved on everything around, the next three days, the next week, the next month on these missions that go on that, that, you know, we just don't see because we're usually right there at the most visually or newsworthy part of the story. I'm certainly not suggesting that, you know, accidents and surprises don't happen, but a lot of things that we see in these movies and dramatic stories are taking some license. We just, we just, there's so much planning that goes into it. Mm. You think of this, the Mars uh, Perseverance rover and the helicopter flights, you know, like, I don't know about you guys, but it landed back in uh, February. And I'm like, well, the drone should be flying within 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Right? And from a, from a capability standpoint, it could have, but boy, they double check and recheck and plan and evaluate the weather and want the, you know, the best possible circumstances to take place. So I would never speak to an issue of whether they would cover up anything or not, but I would say this. I would say one of the things that's really interesting is the amount of uh, knowledge that we do have and that is in play that we're not privy to as we're more, we're more looking at it from an armchair mm-hmm. perspective. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm okay with being an armchair <laughs> astronaut. <laughs> well, I actually connected this ethical dilemma to another problem that is more of a philosophical question. It's called the trolley problem. And it's kind of a side aspect of this because the trolley problem is more removed and that in the in the trolley problem you have six people tied to a track and you see a trolley coming and you have a switch in front of you and you can divert the trolley away from the track that the six people are tied on but there's a one person tied to the track that you're diverting the trolley on and if you divert the trolley you only kill one person instead of six people and then there's a variation on that where you're standing on a bridge and the trolley's coming and you have a very heavy person standing next to you and you can knock the heavy person off in front of the trolley which will stop the trolley from hitting the six people and in the many times that they've posed this question people are willing to throw the switch to kill the one person over the six people but they aren't willing to push somebody off the bridge yeah. And it's basically the same dilemma, but you feel more removed when you can hit the switch. So I think that that kind of ties <laughs> to our armchair discussion. You know, we're looking at this as outsiders. Mm-hmm. And so it's not 
on us to try and make this decision. We're not in the middle of it and we, we can safely feel mm-hmm. removed from the problem. And so I think that in stowaway, they, they really took the effort to make you feel like you were part of the problem, that you weren't sitting external to it and having to, you know, bully your way through what their decisions are. Zoe being the physician, she doesn't want to accept what everybody's saying. You know, she wants to find another way around the problem. I'm going to share a video in our show notes uh, where somebody actually present the trolley problem to a young child. And that is the innate way that we respond to that question is to always try and, but what if, what if, what if you always try to find a way around the problem so you mm-hmm. don't actually have to make the choice. And I think mm-hmm. that that is like Blair said, this is a situation where they're kind of forcing you to make the decision by the whole point of the story instead of skirting the issue. And and in a way, I think that the outcome of this is very biblical. And since that's kind of what the point of our podcast is, is that we needed to, to discuss this from a biblical standpoint of if as Christians, we know that the world is basically falling off a cliff all the time. People are lost and dying without Christ. This is a a lifeboat ethics problem that exists on a day-to-day. We know that there is an eternity and death is not the final outcome. And we should be concerned about what comes for people after death. And that is more of a lifeboat ethics problem for the Christian because it's an eternity ethics Mm. problem. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's interesting. You often in films, I mean, I don't know how you would characterize it in this film, but in a lot of other films, you get this presented most often through mm-hmm. uh, villains, right? So if you think of superhero movies, I mean, uh, the m- most compelling ones that I can think of off the top of my head are uh, Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire version. I can't believe I'm having to say that, but <laughs> the Tobey Maguire version where, you know, he's, he's got to choose between whether he's going to save the bus or he's going to save his girlfriend. And then, of course, the the classic one is very famous with The Dark Knight, where you have the boat full of prisoners and whether or not they're going to listen to him and and, uh, destroy everybody or destroy the, uh, I guess, blow up the boat. The the truth is, is we're not good at this decision. When when we take on a decision like this, we kind of operate from a a perspective of fallen Mm -hmm. perspective. So Mm. whether we would decide that we're going to we're going to flip the switch or not flip the switch. We're in an uneasy position because we're, we're not really qualified to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And as Christians, I think we recognize that there, there's only one person that's qualified to make this decision. Yeah. So it's very, very difficult for us to find ourselves in a situation where we have, where, where we're comfortable there. And then on the flip side, I would say it's also very tricky when you find people that do feel like they have the authority to make mm. that decision. Huh. You see people making this very difficult decisions on other people's behalf historically, and they're usually not very good people that do this. In, in my mind, it all goes back to the garden when at the fall, uh, when Satan says, did God really say? He invited Eve in particular, but Adam and Eve both. He basically invites them to consider themselves as being more capable than God to make those kinds of decisions. So it's no surprise uh, when we do make those decisions, we usually find ourselves in real deep <laughs> weeds. 
really on the wrong side of the equation. But it's still a fascinating one we face. And if you do face it, uh, we shouldn't be surprised at all that this is out of our wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very difficult decision to make. When I was researching this trolley problem, I, I found a, a blog that talked about the trolley problem from a Christian perspective. And he referred to the passage in the Gospels where Jesus is is out in the public and this uh, religious leader, Jairus, comes to tell him that his daughter is very ill and asks him if he will come and, and heal her. And on the way to go to and heal her, the woman with the issue of blood has touched the hem of mm-hmm. Jesus. And he turns around, interrupts, you know, his, his course and turns and dialogues with her. And you can just it, mentally see this man standing at Jesus' side going, will you hurry up? My, da- my daughter is ill, you know? <laughs> and Jesus takes the time to, to talk and discuss with this woman and heal her and make her very private problem, very public. And he doesn't choose between the two because in the end he ends up going and, and even though, you know, the, the servants come and tell Jairus that his daughter has died and not to bother the teacher, you know, he still goes and he raises her and, and in the end, both of the girl and the woman live. And so there, it was no trolley problem there because Jesus saves them both. And there, there was no dilemma because Jesus is capable of saving them both. But those mm. are, situations that as Christians, we can't have. But I also think that part of the solution is as Christians having the eternal perspective instead of the the physical perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's, so too often we get bogged down in the worldly perspective where we are simply thinking about life and death matters as life and death. And when you're in the middle of one, that's really, I guess, going to be the foremost thing consideration in your mind. But the reason why I so appreciate what ends up happening in this movie with Zoe giving her life so that the stowaway can live is that there's a very strong biblical picture there in that instead of having Michael kill himself so that the three others could live, she actually lays her life down so that he can live. And there's Mm -hmm. a a very Christ-like picture there but not only that, it's a picture of what we should as Christians always have in the back of our mind is that it's not about our survival, because whether we live or die, it doesn't matter from an eternal standpoint, we are saved. And our concern should be more about the state of the souls of the people around us. And if having them live another five minutes, another hour, another 10 years is more important to giving them the chance to experience grace and be saved than we should be willing to always be the one to offer our lives up for theirs. And it's a completely different way of looking at it. You know, it's not of an immediate, oh, I've got to live. It's I've got to do what God wants me to do to further the kingdom and to give those who are unsaved an opportunity to know Christ. I feel like as Christians, the trolley problem becomes much easier for us if we modify it to say, and you can save the six people on the trolley by jumping in front of it exactly. yourself. Instead of being mm-hmm. pushing the, mm-hmm. the other person in front of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of what happens with Stowaway. And I was very interested in how 
the deciding factor for Zoe was that she was the only capable one who did not have people on Earth depending on her. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, turn there. I, Eve, I like your analysis there. The redemptive story is always very interesting and compelling, uh, obviously, for Christians in particular, uh, but I think it's universal. I think what's really interesting about Stowaway is two, two aspects. Number one, I, I was surprised that the commander doesn't offer, you know, to fall on the sword, if you will. I keep thinking of all these great classic war movie scenes where somebody dives on the grenade or somebody makes a huge sacrifice for everyone else. And you think that's just a quality that you would want from your team. And especially from your leader, you don't see that. And so that that's one thing. I think she wanted to, but she had broken her wrist and that would have kept her from being able to do the physical demands of being able to go and get the, the canister of oxygen. And I think there was even a line in there. I think she said where if I could do it, I would. So I, I don't yeah. know that if I don't know that it was that she needed to stay behind. It was that she couldn't perform the physical. Yeah. That, and that's a fair point. I think that's, that's true. I think what's also interesting is that, um, Zoe's character fails just before the end mm-hmm. of the movie in a, in a major yeah. way. Right. Mm. Um, she falls short of saving, uh, the crew. So the, the moment of personal redemption for her to take this on so much weightier because she, she had, I mean, not only it's limited who could do it anyway or whether it could be done at all, but she really, after failing, uh, has a great moment of, of redemption where she not only saves the crew, but she overcomes her own failure. It's, it's kind of a beautiful yeah. moment. She tells a story earlier in the film about being a lifeguard and just plunging into the water to save somebody. And I think it was the stowaway that says to her, she and the person she was trying to save get rescued. She wasn't going to be able to save them and they both get rescued. And, you know, he sort of says, well, you know, when did you know that they were going to come get you and save you? And she's like, I didn't. And it, it's a very telling moment about her character where she basically believes it's worth it yeah. to make the sacrifice on hope rather than mm-hmm. certainty, uh, taking that leap of faith, which is just a great thing we recognize, obviously, as believers. So I, I thought that was a great turn to the film. And and of course, uh, Tim, I, I think you're absolutely right about framing that trolley question. From a Christian standpoint, if we believe what the Bible says is true, then that should be something that would be, I don't know if it'd be natural. I mean, we still, we're still sinners and all that stuff, but, um, so maybe it wouldn't be a natural inclination <laughs> to throw ourselves on the track. But, you know, considering, you know, what Jesus has done and what he asks us to do, he's certainly thrown himself on the tracks when mm-hmm. he could save himself and probably could save the others. But in the sense of fulfilling God's justice, somebody's got to fall on the tracks and he's willing to do it when he's probably the only person that's ever existed that, that shouldn't uh, jump on the tracks. In the military that, you know, when you're going through your training, that's one of the things you hope if you ever are put in a situation where jumping on the grenade is required, you hope you have the, the courage to do it. I wanted to go back to something that that you said earlier, Blair, 
when you were talking about the the difference between Kim's character and and Zoe, he was saying, you know, I gave up this mm. whole career, you know, that the this experiment was the whole reason that I'm on this trip and I'm giving I've given it up and it didn't work. What are you going to give up? Oh, yeah, and it was soon after that that she ends up giving her life. And I got yeah. to thinking about that is that, you know, she she took that to heart what he said, you know, that that it was his career that he'd put on the line and he was challenging her, you know, what are you willing to give up for this? And she was willing to go give up her life, which was obviously the greater sacrifice. But there was a line that she had very early on in the movie when they were doing their one-sided interview. <laughs> they asked her, I think, why she wanted to go on the mission. You don't hear the question, but based on the answer, you kind of feel like that's, you know, what they asked her. And she, and she said that she she hoped to give her life meaning beyond anything that she could imagine. And that going on this mission was going to provide meaning for her life. And I, I just... They repeated this line at the end after, you know, you realize that she is going to die because of her act of heroism to save the other three. And they repeat this line kind of as her dying breath. And it reminds me of John 15, 12 through 13. It says, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Yeah. And I, you know, she's the doctor on the mission. And one of the things that really her complete unwillingness to have Michael take his life and she pushed back every time, you know, the other said, we have to make a decision. One of us has to die. She kept pushing back and saying, give it more time. Let's come up with a different solution. She refused to take that solution as the only solution. And and I think that that kind of comes out of her training as a doctor. True, in a triage situation, doctors mm-hmm. do have to choose between, you know, the, the people that are can be saved versus the people who are unlikely to be saved. And I imagine that is agonizing for a doctor because they are trained to to save lives, not take them. It's an interesting contrast between David, who approaches Michael earlier, he goes and gets the medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever that would allow him to, you know, sort of die painlessly. And it's just the difference between somebody bringing you something and saying, you know, hey, you know, for us, why don't you take this and it'll make all our lives, you know, it'll give us a chance and and we have a mission and you don't. It's probably one of the weakest scenes because it's, it's hard to imagine someone actually being able to do that. But, but I, you know, I would never be surprised at what any of us are capable of doing uh, in those <laughs> circumstances. But it's a hard scene to watch. You brought up the scene with Zoe. And I think it's a perfect counterpoint mm-hmm. scene to that. And I also thought of, um, you know, I love the verse that you quoted from John, the, another one from Matthew 10, 39. It says, anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me will find mm-hmm. it. And as difficult as it is, and I'm sure Zoe, you know, if she could work things out differently, she'd continue on her mission, everything would be fine. But there is a sense, and you get this from the film, I think, that even though that's a hard decision, difficult decision, tragic decision in many ways, you get the sense that she's found something that perhaps, and I hate to put him there, but maybe David could, you know, has has not been able to find. Mm. I don't really want to single him out 
but because of that scene it, that that is a heightened moment you hope and you believe that they've learned something through all this but that's just a great great moment when uh, when she does that your quote is great i mean you talk about her life having meaning she's actually sacrificed it for the the greatest gain which is that others may mm. live really tremendous and you know it it strikes me the contrast between Zoe and David that they play so heavily. And it really is that Zoe has hope and David has none. Hmm. To me, it, it speaks to the hope that we have in Christ versus the complete lack of hope that an atheist has. Hmm. You know, for an atheist, when you die, that's it. Nothing else. You're only purpose in life is to enjoy it while you got it. Hmm. It seems to inform David's decisions in the negative while it informs Zoe's decisions in the positive. And I like the way that that ties back into the whole, not only the whole lifeboat narrative, the ethical issue, but also her quote, give my life meaning beyond anything I could imagine, because it does. Hmm. This entire discussion kind of comes out of the fact that we hold human life to be something very powerful and worth saving. If you live in the non-Christian world where you rate people based on their usefulness, you know, what kind of career they have, mm. whether they're <laughs> wealthy, whether they're a man or a woman or a child, or whether they're a vegetable, uh, <laughs> and I mean a vegetable as in not capable of doing much but lay in bed and live on life support. Mm. How do we define human life and what makes person's life valuable? And the situation that we see on board this ship going to Mars, the commander says that the value is based on the three that were chosen for the mission. They all have a valuable job. They were, you know, pulled out of, I guess, a select group of people that wanted to be on that mission, and they were hand-chosen, hand-picked, and specially trained. They were, you know, tested and trained to be on this crew. And then you have this one man who's probably past the weight limit anyway to be on a mission, <laughs> um, <laughs> who happens to have, not by any action of his own end up on the ship, which I, I was actually thinking about this last night. How did he end up on there? Because it <laughs> it doesn't make any sense where he was. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it makes yeah. no sense. Um, um, yeah. But you set no that sense. aside, the fact that he was hiding upside inside yeah. <laughs> some kind of panel that he actually managed to be on the ship because they actually they were in a land in like in a capsule that was shot up and joined to the ship and was he in the capsule i, I, I racked my brain yeah, trying was, to figure out how that actually worked <laughs> I, I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt you know like really because sometimes if they came up with something super creative i'd be like oh that's really impressive but yeah i just i couldn't see it uh yeah, so that was probably the biggest yeah. plot hole of this <laughs> yeah. whole thing was how he got stowed away on the ship to begin with. Anyway, he the whole point, the premise that they set up was that he was not valuable to the mission, and he didn't have the training, he didn't have any way to be of value to the crew, he didn't know any of the work that needed to be done, he was a useless pair of hands, 
what was so valuable about his life that made Zoe want to lay down hers for him. And that is something that we have to deal with as Christians and as a culture, because we are making decisions on a daily basis that affect the lives of, of real people. And I know that Tim and I have hashed this out in our podcast many times in many episodes because we are both strongly pro-life. And that life is valuable from the moment of conception all the way to the moment that God calls that a person home and to the final judgment, whether that's heaven or hell, our life has value. And you can't choose to just declare somebody not being worth mm-hmm. living, yeah. whether it's a baby still in the womb uh, or whether it's a person that is on life support that needs machines to breathe, you know, if they're conscious and still living, whether their life has value, quote unquote, uh, is not determined about whether they are, I guess, a useful member of society that have a job to do or were trained to do or any of those things. It's it's fascinating because I think, you know, the tendency to make these decisions to step in and be the person that decides whether someone else's quality of life is sufficient or where life begins or where it should end. All these questions, we are not capable of making that decision well, right? We're sinners, right? We're flawed and -hmm. we're not going to make that decision well. And, And when we take that on, when we take that authority and decide that we do know, I get it. I can, I can be sympathetic to people making difficult choices for sure. But I will tell you historically, and we saw it uh, in Amos in particular, what tends to happen is when these kinds of decisions are made or when that authority is taken, whether it's for good reason or ill, it's not very long before you start to lose the value of the person created in the image of God. We see that in Amos in particular, where God's people are guilty of treating the poor like commodities. I mean, that's the actual what's being discussed. They start to trade and sell them like uh, like product. It's like they've commodified the image of God. And it angers God incredibly because mm. it's an offense against him. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. we tend to think, oh, well, you know, it's sad for, for that person or that unborn child or for that older person or for that person in a vegetative state. But we rarely stop to think about what we're doing to the image of God when we decide that we can make that decision. Uh, and lots of good people have, have been in a position where they've had to make those decisions. And I feel for them because I mean, we're, we don't do well when we're faced with those yeah. decisions. We just we can't. And I think it's interesting that one of the arguments that's used against the pro-life people is that God takes lives. And so if God can take lives, then why can't people? Hmm. Some of the arguments that I've heard is, you know, well, there's a natural abortion when a woman miscarries a baby. And why is it wrong for God to do that, you know, to make a woman miscarry when you can't have, you know, have an abortion? Hmm. And my point is, it's God. I mean, God can make those choices. We can't. And we don't have that kind of authority over life and death matters. That's, you know, and God may have a very good reason for not letting that child live to uh, birth, but that's not on us to make a choice on. Yeah, And it makes me think back to, you know, like the 
the Noah's Ark story in the Bible, you know, where all of the people in the world were sinful and God chose to save eight people, yeah. just eight people on the ark. And he let all those other people die. He, he didn't let them die. He killed them. Yeah. yeah. And, and that happens. I mean, when the, when Israel takes over Canaan, he's, or, he orders Israel to destroy them just, you know, all the way down to the babies in, in the, in the hands of, that's God's judgment. Yeah. That isn't man's judgment. We can't put ourselves in the in God's it, shoes. And it's interesting because right right after he saves Noah, uh, it's not like Noah has an unblemished track record from then, then on to <laughs> things go south. Yeah. What, what I like to think about is Job. I think it's chapter thirty eight. You know, Job undergoes all kinds of horrific trials, and his friends let him down. Mm-hmm. It's just not a pretty picture. What's fascinating is that he finally has a discussion with God about what's going on, and God gives him about 70 questions. I think it literally is like 70 questions, but he opens a salvo with basically, well, Job, I hear what you're talking about, but where were you when, you know, I created the universe? You know, and where were you when all these things were happening under the sea and all these things were happening in the sky and life was going on? And the undercurrent of those questions are, you're not capable of knowing all that I know. And you can't make these decisions well. Mm. Yeah. Incidentally, Job is considered wisdom literature. And I think that really the thrust of that is God saying that you can fret uh, and wrestle over your own ability to answer that question, or you can trust the one who's capable of addressing that question. And it requires a leap of faith. I get it. Some people are just not, don't want to do it. And I understand. But what God is saying is that I created the universe and I love you and I've saved you and I care for you. Are you going to trust me or are you going to trust your own limited perspective on any given situation? And it's a hard question. People in those situations, we can't minimize it. It's very difficult. But at the same time, in the midst of the most difficult situation, you know, I'm compelled to believe that we should go with someone who actually can handle um, and has the authority to handle the situation. Yeah, I was thinking in this whole concept of, you know, the sanctity of human life. And one of the verses that I see people take out of context quite a bit is the Exodus law about if a pregnant woman is hit and her children are born and there's no injury, you know, that there's no consequences for that. And I think that sometimes there there has been a, a misinterpretation of that passage that, you know, the child comes out, people read that as being an abortion, but it actually means that if the child is delivered alive and the child is okay, mm. then there aren't any consequences. Mm. But if the child is injured or killed, then it's you know, then there's a judicial assessment based on, you know, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, and a tooth yeah. for a tooth. And this is a situation where people try to read into scripture that there isn't any value in in life. But when you read these Exodus and Leviticus laws that God set forward for all of the the consequences for, you know, beating a slave or hitting a, a pregnant woman so that she delivers her baby prematurely, you know, you just read through all of those Exodus laws and Levitical laws. Is it really does put you in the mind frame that God saw life as valuable, mm. regardless of your station in life, regardless of who you were born as, whether you're a woman, a man, a slave, a free person, you have value in the sight of God. And that is 
I think the difference that Christianity has over pretty much everything else out there, I can't really think, especially of the, of the old religious sects that predate Christianity, God really put an emphasis on the value of life. And I think that that is where we should be as Christians, that we hold the value of human life so sacred that we don't take it lightly. Mm. And that's a hard position to be in because I think that as, especially as Western Christians, we tend to rationalize that a mm. lot with, you know, the, the concept of self-defense and, and carrying arms and serving in the armed forces and all of that. It's really easy to start, you know, justifying the taking of a life and, and it's something, this is an ethical question that we have to face and we have to be right with God and really sensitive to what God is teaching us in scripture so that when we're put in a situation where we have to make a choice, that we already kind of know what God has told us on this. Because if we don't, mm -hmm. if we're not prepared in advance, we're going to react like the humans that we are, <laughs> the fallen humans. Yeah, I only laugh because I probably would have you know, tried to give the medicine to everybody on the spacecraft. I probably would have. <laughs> I mean, I, I talk a good game, but I probably would be, you know, who knows? I, I, I would like to think I would do the right thing. But fortunately, we haven't, we're not always thrust into that situation. But you're absolutely right, Eve. You've, you really do need to wrestle with these things when they're, when you're not facing them, right? So that when the time yeah. does, does come that you're, you're not unprepared. I think that's, that's fair. And what I appreciate about Zoe's sacrifice in this was that she didn't just kill herself. Mm. She died doing something yeah. to save the others. Yeah, absolutely. To your point, Eve, it's important that we study the scripture faithfully and that we become familiar with it. You know, when I was going through basic training, when we would standing in line to get chow, the drill sergeants would go up and down the line and yelling in the way only a drill sergeant can questions it <laughs> at us. Stuff like, what's the maximum effective range of an M16 rifle? And, you know, we, we would respond. But what they were doing was that they were drilling into our heads the basic information so that when the time came to make snap decisions that we would be able to make those snap decisions in an informed manner. And that's really what studying scripture is about, is scripture informs how we live our lives. Not only is it God's love letter to us, but it's God's set of instructions. It's sufficient for everything that we need to do. Hmm. So it's important that we are entrenched enough in scripture that when we get hit by these unexpected circumstances – that we make the right decisions and, and when the time comes for us to stand before the throne, that we can do so confident or as confident as we can be, even if we made the wrong decision, that we were trying to be faithful and obey the will of God. Yeah. Although, although I got to say that uh, when I stand before God, thankfully, He'll be seeing Jesus and not yeah, me, and not me. <laughs> because, because even though we want to obey and we want to do right, we, we fail. Do, yeah, we fail. And to, due to his mercy, he basically says, my righteousness, mm -hmm. I put it on you. And good grief, we need that. Oh, do <laughs> yeah. we ever. Yeah. All right. Well, 
that pretty much was the main theme of this movie. And there's other things that we could discuss about it. There's a, you know, a couple other little themes that are worth discussing in this movie. And if you all have watched the movie and want to discuss these with us, we do invite you to come and join us in our Facebook group. You can get there by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community, and that will get you into the group. And you just have to answer three simple questions and then you can start discussions there and we'll be posting this episode in the group as well as on our Facebook page. Eve, wasn't this movie a suggestion from somebody on the group? Yes, it actually was. Yes. We love it when people suggest movies for us because then we don't have to think about it. You know? <laughs> uh, 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 oh, I'm probably going to start and, suggesting a ton of different movies. I'm, I'm, and I'm even, I, <laughs> even I don't fight over what we're going to watch next. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't ever fight about what we're going to watch next, but it does it is a discussion sometimes like what do you want to watch this month? What do you uh, want to watch this month? I guess I'll take the cage yeah. down in the backyard then cuz I was getting ready for our next one. <laughs> So we're hoping now that the theaters are starting to open back up and some of the restrictions are falling off that we can start doing more in the theater movies. Though this one was a new release. It just came out the end of April. And if you don't have Netflix and didn't watch it, I hope that you still enjoyed the discussion because it is a valuable discussion. And I know that Andrew Rappaport listens to every one of our episodes and very rarely has seen the movie when he listens. <laughs> so, so call out to Andrew Rappaport for that, for sitting through all of our episodes without having really having a clue what we're talking about. That makes four of us. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank the people who are consistently supporting us on Patreon. We have Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who have been supporting us monthly. You can also support us monthly by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching? And any gift on a monthly basis would be appreciated. It doesn't have to be a large one, uh, but this does help us cover the costs of uh, producing our show and keeping it in your feed. And I thank you so much. We have been now doing this podcast for over 10 years. And it, it really is amazing when I look back over the many years, especially since Tim has joined and, and it really has been a, a blessing to be able to Indeed. discuss these movies. Yeah. From a, from a Christian standpoint and having the conversations, uh, as I said, you can share your feedback in our group. You can also comment on the show notes, which will be at are you just watching dot com slash one sixteen. You can call us at five one three eight one eight two nine five nine and leave a voicemail, or you can email feedback at are you just watching dot com. And we also would love for you to subscribe to our podcast in whichever way you get your podcasts. There's Apple Podcasts, there's Google Podcasts, there's Amazon Podcasts, and many others. And we are on most of the major ones. So make sure that you have subscribed, liked us, so that you will get our episodes when they come up. We're not as consistent as we would like to about getting them posted on a particular day of the month. But we do try to post one once a month. So we would love for you to be getting those. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a real pleasure to have Blair with us, and we'll have to do it again sometime. And uh, maybe next time we do a high-concept science fiction. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. Loved it. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. 
The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.